0: Messiah, those are those are not just words that we throw out there this morning. We've been singing words of truth. Truth that call us to a response and truth that words that allow us to express a response together. Truth that demands choices and decisions. And I trust that as we sing these songs, that they just bring that joy and that worship and that praise from your heart as we reflect on who God is and what He's done for us through His Son. Well, let's pray together as we come to our time in the Word this morning. Father, we love You and we thank You for sending us Your Son, Jesus, our Messiah. We thank You for reaching into our lives with Your Word and Your Spirit and calling us to Yourself for forgiveness and life. And as we come to this time this morning, we look into your word together because we need to hear from you. Help us not to miss what you have for us this morning. We ask that you would take your truth and you would plant it deep in our hearts and our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are moments when everything you're involved in changes. The direction changes, the meaning changes, those kind of things. Some of our students, maybe you're studying math or science, and it's just not coming. Anybody else, or was that just me? All right, and they're talking, and it's like another language, and then I didn't personally have ever this experience in math class. You may have when it just kind of clicks, and the light comes on, and you go, oh, and it makes sense from that moment on. I'm still waiting for that. Uh, But we have those moments of uh, uh, those turning points. I mean, it happens even when you watch a ball game and you see things go and it it seems like it's going in one direction. And why do you watch right to the end? Because the TSN turning point is coming, right? You don't know what moment will change the total direction of how that all plays out. Uh, People talk about these turning points in terms of world events and and wars that happen. In the Second World War, people will debate, what was the turning point? Was it Pearl Harbor when the U.S. joined the conflict? Was it D-Day when we finally got a a foothold back in Europe? Was it the day that they they dropped the atomic bomb? Was it the whole thing together and that conflict changing the direction of, of global history? And so we have these turning points, and we can look back and debate and talk about them when it comes to the ministry of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the lives of his disciples whom he was leading and teaching and using in ministry, when it comes to you and to me, there is a critical moment, and it is all tied into this name which we've just been singing to who Jesus is, to why He came, and to what our ultimate response will and must be. And as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we come this morning to this turning point in Matthew chapter 16. Everything that we've read, everything that we've studied, all of these events, all of these moments of teaching and living with his disciples of, of, of the miracles and, and all that's happened and all that we've seen them come through, it has all been leading up to this moment. Matthew 16, as we come to this passage this morning, this is the hinge on which everything turns. It is a complete turning point in both the ministry of Jesus and in the lives of his disciples. Join me in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Matthew 16, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now Jesus is now moving away from the area we've been looking at where he's been walking around and and dealing in a primarily Jewish area. The Pharisees, remember we saw, have come from the south and they've come up north to investigate him and challenge him and, and so he's been under this kind of scrutiny and attack and pressure and he is now with his disciples, he is now withdrawing further north into an area that's predominantly a Gentile area. And he's having these quiet moments before he starts making his way back down to Galilee, and then he will continue that long journey south to Jerusalem. And as he comes aside here now in this quiet area, this this little more relaxed area for he and his disciples, as they come together, he asks them, guys, who, who do people, you're talking to people, you're listening to the crowds, you're interacting with people, those people out there, who do they say the Son of Man is? jesus in using that phrase the son of man he's referring to himself he's quoting daniel chapter seven and that title of the messiah and this word this phrase the son of man that's a huge messianic significance in the life of israel and the jews hear this and they they understand this and he says of himself who do people say the son of man is who am i And they said, these are his disciples, they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Why would some people think Jesus was John the Baptist? Well, back in chapter 14, verse 2, we find that Herod starts to hear about Jesus. He starts to hear about the miracles and the things that are going on out there. And people are reporting to Herod what's going on. And Herod says, he actually makes this statement. He must be John the Baptist back from the dead because I killed this man of God and God must have risen him again and given him all of these powers. That must be who he is. And if Herod's thinking that, maybe there are others that are thinking the same thing as they listen to him other people say jesus that maybe you're you're elijah you're the one who was to come the the great forerunner of the messiah others say maybe you're jeremiah or or one of the prophets maybe god has sent another prophet among us and it's important to note when jesus asks his disciples who do people say i am he is not ask he's not taking a poll He's not saying let's pool all of these great ideas and put them together and start a movement in which we just have this all these wonderful little lines of teaching and thinking. It's not what he's saying at all. Jesus is getting his disciples to state for him all the wrong answers. And he's bringing out of them one more time that these are the wrong answers to who he is. You see, you don't get a vote. On who Jesus is. And neither do I. It just doesn't work like that. Let's read together this morning. Acts chapter 2 verse 36. Do we have that up here? Thank you. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter, speaking on the day of Pentecost, he says, you you thought you had a vote in who Jesus is, and so you attacked him and responded to him in in that way, and you rejected him. But he said, you don't get a vote. God made him Lord. God made him Christ. God said, this is my son. God said, this is my Christ, my Messiah, my promised one. He's your only savior, the only one you're going to get. He's your only hope. He's your only rescue. And so God is not taking a poll. Jesus is not taking a poll out of interest's sake because we get some kind of input into this. It just doesn't happen. Number of years ago, the BBC did a documentary on Jesus. And the presenter of of the documentary, Jeremy Bowen, made this statement. He said, The important thing is not what Jesus was or what Jesus wasn't. The important thing is what people think he may have been. Jeremy, you are dead wrong. It is absolutely critical who Jesus is. And we don't get a vote or an opinion on the matter. God says he is Lord, he is Christ. Does it matter who Jesus is? Let's read Acts chapter 4 verse 12. What do we read here? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Does it matter who Jesus is? Absolutely, absolutely. Scott McKnight is a a professor at a Christian college in the United States. And every year he takes his incoming class at the start of the year and he gives them a test. And he hands them the first part of the test, which is 24 questions long. And he's asking them a series of questions about what these students think Jesus is like. He asks them Do you think he is moody? Do you think Jesus gets nervous? Do you think he's the life of the party, or is Jesus more of an introvert? 24 questions about who you think Jesus is, what Jesus is like. When they're done that, he gives them the second half of the test. Another 24 questions with slightly altered wording, and he now asks them questions about themselves and their own personalities. Now, Scott McKnight is not the only one to give this test. People around the world have been giving this test for a number of years. And all the result, results are remarkably similar. Everybody, everybody describes Jesus the way they see themselves. And his conclusion is this, that 300 years ago, the French philosopher Voltaire made this statement. If God has created us in his image, we have certainly returned him the favor. It's amazing. Instead of looking at Jesus for who he is, we try to make him more like us. It's a little less for us to change that way, right? Right? we suddenly become a little more acceptable that way. Well, as Patrick Morley puts it, the turning point in our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and we start seeking the God who is. That's the point. That's the point. And so Jesus is not what we make him or want him to be. Jesus is who he is. He is, in fact, the great I am. I am who I am. Important for us to realize. And so he asks his disciples this question, what is the world out there saying about who I am? And he gets all these responses, and he has them articulate the wrong answers. And then Jesus says, but, that's a tiny word, very significant, but you, that's out there, that's where all the wrong answers live. But you, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Now, that you there is plural. He looks at the 12 and he says, Who do you say I am, guys? But in asking the group that question, he is looking for a very personal response. Just as this morning, through his word, through reading this passage in this place with this group, the Spirit of God continues to call out to this group this morning, and he asks us as a group, what about you? The world out there has lots of ideas and opinions on who I am, but they don't get evoked. It's kind of irrelevant what they think. Stop worrying about that. I'm asking you. What do you say about who I am? And he asks us all, but he waits for each one of us to respond. And so this question does not come just to all of us, but it also comes to each of us. It comes to all of us as a group and each of us as individuals. Who do you say that I am? No doubt The disciples had discussed this on many occasions amongst themselves, wouldn't you think? And their spokesman, their leader, Peter, responds. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. And not only that, you call yourself the Son of Man, but I'm saying you are the Son of God. And Jesus responds in verse 17 with this outburst of of joy and relief and all that you can put into that. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. He looks back at his disciples. He looks at Peter and he goes, Oh, finally, after all those moments of missing the point, of being confused about what I'm doing, of not understanding who I am, you totally missed that lunch when I fed the 5,000. You were so worked up about yourselves, you missed the point of who I am. And finally, after all of this time, my father pulled off the blinders and he showed you who I am. Oh, Simon, you got it. And Jesus is so excited, and he responds this way. He says, oh, do you understand how blessed you are that God has opened your eyes to who I am? And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He looks at Peter, Simon, and he calls him in Aramaic, Cephas in Greek, he calls him Petras, Peter, Rock. And he's referring back to that name change that he predicted and promised in John chapter 1. And just as Abr- Abram's name changed to Abraham and Jacob's name turned to, changed to Israel, Simon's name changes to Peter. And he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this issue this morning. I'll just say this. I think out of fear of being confused with some of the things that have been done with this passage relating to Peter, we've tried to come up with other explanations. But as we study this passage, I am absolutely convinced that the only way it makes sense for Jesus to use these word, these plays on words with Peter, his name, and on this rock, and the things that he's doing there, and again, we don't have time to get into the details of it this morning, I'm fully convinced that he's talking to Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You are first among equals. You're the leader of these, these apostles. Peter's the one who later in Acts chapter 6 will open the... Um, sorry, in Acts chapter 2, he will explain the gospel to the Jews and Acts chapter 8 to the Samaritans and Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles Peter is the, the early leader of the apostles and there is something special going on here you are the one to whom God chose to reveal this truth and I am showing this to you and now Peter on this rock on you on these men on your ministry I will build my church Ephesians 2 19 and 20 let's read that together So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ as the cornerstone. And repeatedly throughout the epistles we read this. Christ is the cornerstone. And then on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he then builds each one of us that he calls to himself as bricks into this spiritual house that he's building. His new temple. Peter does not in these moments become the Pope. And I could take the time to go through the book of Acts and explain to you why that is clear we don't have time for that this morning but not only is Peter not the Pope listen Peter's not the point point. and sometimes as we read these passages we get distracted with some of these details Peter is not the point of this passage Jesus is who am I guys you are the Christ the son of God that is the point of this passage that is the point where does he go from here? He says, I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of Hades, the gates of often translated hell, the gates of Hades, the realm of the dead, will not defeat my church. People will try to kill my followers. People will try to wipe them out in this generation and all the ones to come. The gates of death will not prevail. Why? Because I'm going there myself. And I am defeating it and I'm coming back. And I'm leaving the door open for all who will follow me. What does 1 Corinthians tell us about this? Let's read this together. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is building his church. And it doesn't matter what people do to try to interfere and stop it. It doesn't matter how many of his followers they kill. It just doesn't matter. It's not going to stop it. It's not going to stop him. He conquered death. He conquered death and gives victory and grants life. Amen? continues that work today. He says I will give you the keys to the kingdom and again I think here he is talking about entry to the kingdom. He's talking about the gospel. We talked about the different groups that Peter introduced Christ to but I think again we don't have time for the detail here but you go into Matthew 18 verse 18 and we have the same language when he's dealing with with issues of, of discipline and people that are continuing to say I'm a follower of Jesus but I'm living in unrepentant sin and they refuse to deal with it Jesus says, uh, We had a problem. Because if you're truly mine and you're confronted with your sin, that's a call to repentance and to continuing to walk with me. To continue to defy me shows the heart. And he says, That person's to be treated like an unbeliever. Why? Well, because a believer responds to the call for repentance. And those who would defy God, they're not his. And I think this is all tied in with this passage. We haven't got time to break it all down. But he's talking again about Peter and the apostles guiding this new community as they walk forward together. And he says, now is not the time for you to go and tell everybody I'm the Christ. I needed to get this straight with you first. You needed to get this ready. And then, now that you've got this right, there are some things you need to know. And the day will come when everyone will need to know. But remember of this passage in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is the point and not Peter. And this passage, this conversation, is the clear-cut, indisputable turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Everything he's been building into the lives of his disciples have been right up to this moment. And now that they finally settle in their hearts who he is, he is the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 21 says... This little phrase, sometimes we skip right over, but it's very significant. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. Now we've got something. Now he sets his eyes on the cross, and he starts to tell them not just who he is, but now why he came. And everything changes. Everything changes. And so it's about knowing who Jesus is, but then it's also something so much more. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Why? I won't let it. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is not about your plan, your agenda, your ideas of how this whole kingdom thing should work, Peter. It is just not... And you're trying to distract me and have me do things your way instead of setting your heart and your mind in, the, in heaven and allowing me to do things God's way. And that's what I must do. That's what I must do. He tells them how he must suffer, how he must go to the cross, how he must rise again. And how it must be God's plan. You know who I am. Now you need to know why I came. And Jesus tells them he's going to the cross, regardless of what Peter may think. I'm going to the cross because I must. Why? Because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross and become sin for us, all he did was tell us some nice things and leave us dead in our sin. He had to go and pay the price for our sin. He had to come and kick that tomb open from the inside out. He had to rise again. Only he can now forgive sin. He's the one who paid our price. Only he can grant life. He's the one who has conquered death. Peter, I must. This is why I've come. And Peter struggled with that and said, this isn't the way I had it it imagined. And Jesus says, that's irrelevant. This is the plan of God and this is what must be. And then... Jesus looks at Peter and he looks around the room at the rest of his disciples and he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Not only is this conversation a turning point in the ministry of Jesus... It is an absolute turning point in the hearts and the lives of the disciples, those who would follow him. He looks at them and says, Now that you know that I'm the Christ, the Son of God, what are you going to do with that information? Now you must follow me. It's not enough just to know who I am. There's so much more. James chapter 2, verse 19 tells us, You believe that there's one God? Paraphrase, so What? The demons believe that. And when they think of him, they shudder. It does them absolutely no good to know there's one God. They used to serve and stand in his presence. They know who he is. It didn't do them any good whatsoever. So we're only at step one in knowing who I am, Jesus says. You need to go further. You need to now follow me. And he says, how that works is this. First, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must say, Steve, this is no longer about me. This is no longer about my plans. This is no longer about my reputation. This is no longer about my safety. It's no longer about my agenda or my appetites or my desires or anything to do with me. I'm done. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Now, we have this so ill-defined sometimes. We think, well, you know, I, I got a bad temper. But, you know, that's, you know, we all have a cross to bear. Or, I know I talk about people too much, but we all have our cross to bear. That's not your cross to bear. It's your sin, and Jesus died for it. Turn your back on it and walk away. Taking up your cross means this. In that culture, these guys knew what Jesus was talking about. And he was about to show them the ultimate example of this. If they saw anybody in the Roman world walking down the road carrying a crossbeam, he had a soldier on each side and there was only one thing you knew about that guy. You might not know what he did, but you knew where he was going and you knew he was done. It is over. He's a dead man. And Jesus said to follow him, we must deny ourselves, turn our back on all of that, take up our cross I die to sin. I die to self, and I follow Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. Follow me. And we see Jesus in that, live out that entire process as he comes to the garden. And he falls on his face before God and says, Is there another way? But it's not about me, it's your way, it's about your will. And I surrender to your will, and I will take up my cross, and I will go where you call me. And Jesus lived it out right in front of them. And here he calls them to do the exact same thing. He says, if you don't deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, then what have you got? Well, what if you collect everything this world has to gain? You gain all the popularity, you gain all the money, you gain all, the, all the, uh, the, the experiences, all the fun, everything you've got. You add up all the riches this world has to offer. And then, as he will tell in the story of the rich fool, God says, you fool. Your hands look full, but today your soul is demanded of you, and now what? All you've got is stuff. And you stand before me completely empty-handed on your own. Jesus said, what good would it be to gain the whole world if you're going to lose your soul? What are you going to use to pay God for your soul? It can't be done. That's why Jesus went to the cross. There's nothing you can do to trade in, in exchange for a good standing before God. And he says, I am coming back. And when I come back, I will give to each according to what he's done. So it's time to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow me. He then looks at his disciples and says, I truly say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And again... We use that verse, and we get totally distracted by what, about what Jesus had just said, and we focus on that as though that were the point it 's not what did Jesus mean by that? Did some of those guys never die? Well, they witnessed Pentecost they witnessed these, this start, the start the miraculous start and explosion of the early church. John himself was ushered into the throne room of heaven and showed what would be, what would come. But again, that's not the point. What is the point of what Jesus is saying? You know who I am. Now are you going to follow me? If you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and come along. This was the turning point. Who am I in the ministry of Jesus? But it also became the turning point in the hearts and lives of these disciples. Are you going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? Huge turning point for each of them. They did not all make the same decision, by the way. And it is the turning point in our lives as well. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of God, our only hope for forgiveness in life. Will I deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him? The scriptures say this is how we know we're in Christ. Anyone who claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. So here's the bottom line Do I really know and believe who Jesus is? Really? The Christ, the Promised One, the Son of God, our only hope and our only help. Am I denying myself, carrying my cross, and following Jesus? That is the turning point not just in his ministry and not just in their lives but in our lives as well right here this morning. Is this simply information? Or is this God revealing to us how we can now respond to him and be his? What are you going to do? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you truly believe that? That's good. But angels in heaven knew that and rebelled with Satan. So clearly it's not enough. What will you do? Will you deny yourself? Take up your cross and follow Jesus? The one whom Jesus, the one whom God, rather, the Father, made both Lord and Christ. I don't get a vote. Neither do you. But you know what we do get? The opportunity to respond. The opportunity to respond. And I urge you, I urge you, if you do not know who Jesus is, find out. And if you know who Jesus is, that's just not enough. Follow Him. Follow Him. I urge you this morning, take a couple of quiet moments now. And ask yourself honestly, what is God saying to me this morning? What is he speaking into my life and what will I do about it? And then we will sing. And at the end of the service, uh, I won't greet at the door today. I'm just going to sit up here. And if you have questions about who Jesus is, and why, Steve, why can you be so confident in who you, you, you say Jesus is? Do you got questions? Just come and talk. We'll just talk. If you say, I know who Jesus is, but I'm not sure. I, I really have denied myself taken up my cross and that I'm His and I'm following Him. Come. Ask. Let's talk. Let's pray. Let's deal with this. Because this is indeed the turning point. Not just for Jesus' ministry. Not just for these twelve. For each of us in this room let's reflect on what God has said to us today